If you follow me on Twitter, you'll know I sometimes have a good moan about how nuclear bunkers, those which are open to the public, are becoming tourist attractions, filled with mood lighting and silly mannequins, dressing up boxes and always a tacky gift shop at the end. The bunker up in Anstruther even has a bar inside. Although I can hardly complain, I suppose, I've enjoyed a nice gin and tonic down there. But it does sometimes irritate when these grim places, built to withstand a nuclear war, ready to conduct the admin of Armageddon, are being hawked to the public as enjoyably creepy places, good for a giggle and a shiver up the spine. How long before they start hosting stag and hen parties? Yes, I know people will argue that a lot of these bunkers are now privately owned, and so the owner needs to make money, needs to bring in the punters, and so perhaps has to inject a bit of gaudy entertainment. But is that being done at the expense of our Cold War heritage? We can even see the same thing happening in Chernobyl. I was interviewed by Newsweek on this topic a few weeks ago, and I noted that disrespectful tourism is on the rise there, bringing with it litter and vandalism. And yes, even a stag party where the idiots involved were dressed up as radioactive man. Why is fun suddenly being attached to nuclear catastrophe? But let's try and rein in my anger and stick to the topic which this week is the reality of having to survive in a nuclear shelter. When you visit a bunker which is open for tourism, you might have an enjoyable day, get an ice cream and some fridge magnets... But what would it really have been like to have been confined to a nuclear bunker or or a makeshift nuclear shelter built in the home, living under fallout conditions, not able to visit the bathroom or wash, with no daylight, no room to move, no fresh air, no hope, certainly no gin and tonic? Throughout the Cold War, there were various experiments conducted to see how people, ordinary people, not just politicians or military, would cope if confined to one of these places. And today we'll look at one of the most famous, the York Experiment. My name's Julie McDowell, and this is the Atomic Hobo. We all know the popular stereotype of Yorkshire folk is that they are tough and hardy and no-nonsense types. And it was three Yorkshire women who, in 1965, volunteered to take part in the York Experiment, where they'd live in a specially constructed fallout shelter, which was to be assembled in line with the official government advice. And so the experiment would test the practicality of building one of these shelters, but would also test the psychological strain on the inhabitants as they hunkered down in this tiny space for 48 hours. If you want to learn more about that official government advice, see one of my previous podcasts called Advising the Householder on Protection Against Nuclear Attack. That's the catchy title that was given to the official 1960s civil defence manual, 
which told you how to assemble one of these nuclear shelters at home, what food and supplies you need to gather for those dreadful days where you'd be stuck, trapped inside as the siren blared, stuck there with no fresh air, no working toilet, rising nausea at being enclosed with the smells, stinks and sweats and probably rising hysteria as the world outside fell to pieces. Of course, the shelter experiments of the Cold War were all missing one quite vital element, nuclear war itself. Everyone who volunteered to endure an experiment in shelter living at least had the psychological comfort of knowing that when they crawled out, sweaty, cramped and pale, they could look forward to a hot bath, a soft bed and a nice dinner. So these experiments can only shed light, of course, on the basics of how these shelters could be constructed and how reasonable it was to expect people to actually live in them for 40 hours and how adaptable we are to being shoved in such a dark, miserable space for that time. So let's take a look at the ladies of the York experiment and what they went through. The women were part of the York Civil Defence Committee and the committee had decided to set up an exhibit which would show the public how to put into effect the government's instructions on building shelters at home. They had the idea of actually putting some volunteers into the shelter for the required period, 48 hours, to show or to suggest or imply that it was easy peasy and everyone could safely follow these crazy instructions. Let me just be clear here on the difference in terminology between nuclear shelters, fallout rooms and what we'll hear as inner cores or refuges. A nuclear bunker or nuclear shelter is usually something properly designed and manufactured and built underground. It has blast doors and ventilation systems. Basically you need to get the men in to build it. You can't do this yourself based on a little leaflet from the government. There would have been no such bunkers for the population of Britain unless they were one of the chosen intended for the official bunkers or unless they had the money, time and space to have one built on their own property. If you didn't have a proper bunker or shelter then the next best thing, according to government advice, was to designate a fallout room in your house and just cross your fingers and hope that the house itself would provide sufficient protection from nuclear blast while you all huddled in the fallout room. So the fallout room would be one that you would choose which would offer you the greatest protection. So that would be the one at the core of the house, preferably with no windows and furthest away from any exterior walls. This room would contain all your supplies, your water, your tinned foods, your first aid, etc. But even that wasn't enough. It wasn't good enough to have a designated fallout room. Inside the fallout room, you had to assemble yet another shelter. And this was your shelter core, or your inner core, or your inner refuge. It pops up under a lot of different names. This um, inner core, or refuge, is famously depicted in Protect and Survive, uh, When the Wind Blows, and Threads, for example, as... The householder having to take their doors off the hinges, their interior doors obviously, not the front door. You're trying to keep that nuclear blast out. The last thing you want to do is take the door off. You would 
take your, say, kitchen and living room doors off the hinges and prop them up against the wall inside your fallout room. You would nail the doors to the wall and then pile on top of the slanted doors heavy things such as mattresses, boxes filled with books or plastic bags filled with clothes. The idea is to build up lots and lots of layers, lots and lots and lots of material between you and the fallout. And into the tiny gap between doors and wall, you would creep and you would huddle there for 48 hours, only emerging for tiny intervals to grab food or go to the toilet. Your toilet, of course, is now a bucket lined with bin bags and a good scoosh of bleach. You can't use your ordinary toilet because the water supply has been cut off. So you're inside your inner core refuge for 48 hours and even after you've left that, after 48 hours, you still can't leave your fallout room. You've got to be in your fallout room for probably up to two weeks. But the York experiment focuses on 48 hours spent within the tiny space of the inner core or refuge. So what was it like in there? Well, Mrs Jones, Miss Smith and Miss Veal were sent on the ordeal to find out. Inside the building, to replicate as far as possible post-nuclear conditions, the water and electricity were turned off. There was no natural light in the fallout room, as the women had, in line with instructions, boarded them up to protect them against blast. A chemical toilet sat in the corner of the room behind a screen. The ladies had with them, as per government instructions, a battery-powered radio from which they would receive specially arranged emergency broadcasts, giving them advice and instruction, as would be anticipated if things went according to plan after nuclear war. See my previous podcast on the BBC after nuclear war? And what about their tiny little inner refuge within the fallout room? Well, that was made, as we discussed, by propping two old doors against the wall and piling it with sandbags which actually caused some alarm as the weight of the sandbags caused the old doors to bulge. They also found, and here's some useful practical advice if you have to build one of these things, that they had to fix a plank of wood at the foot of the doors to stop all the sandbags tumbling off and sliding down onto the floor. So you see, the experiment is already paying off. Ah, but wouldn't a good old tremor from the blast wave also send those little sandbags scuttling down. Look, don't question the government advice. Just keep filling those sandbags, okay? The women were given food in line with government advice, water, tinned goods, etc. Because the government urged citizens to stock up on food in the warning period before nuclear war, assuming there was a warning period. Now that's fine, as long as no one else is stocking up at the same time. Otherwise, those supermarket shelves will be bare very quickly. But if a lucky housewife manages to buy everything she needs and finds herself with an excess of food before the bomb drops and it won't easily keep, then the government advised she process it in some way, use those wonderful housewife skills to make use of your food rather than let it perish. I quote, Anyone who found they've been able to acquire an excess of milk could boil it or make some into blancmange, custard, junk it or preserve it in some similar way. Now, what on earth is junk it? I had to Google that. 
Apparently it's a custard-like dish flavoured with rennet. Okay, I had to Google rennet. And according to dictionary.com, rennet is the lining membrane of the fourth stomach of a calf or the stomach of certain other young animals. Well, oh lovely. Tummy custard. Just what we want to eat before the end of the world. A fitting last meal. So the women were now ready to enter their inner shelter and the media had been informed of this great experiment and were gathered outside, maybe hoping to capture them emerging 48 hours later, haggard and hysterical. The People newspaper reported it and I've put the picture of this on my Twitter if you want to see it. They reported it with the headline Three women are locked in a shelter for 48 hours. What will they talk about? So, living in that tiny, cramped space, with only occasional visits allowed outside into the wider fallout room, what was it like? Was it manageable? Was it comfortable? Could the government reasonably expect all of us to do this? The main effect the women reported was apathy. A terrible, draining, miserable apathy. I would have assumed being confined to such a space for 48 hours would provoke restlessness, bad temper, anxiety, claustrophobia. But the woman reported the very opposite. A listless, hopeless apathy. They had taken books, playing cards and knitting with them, intending to keep hands and minds occupied, but in the event, they did nothing. I'll quote from the report here. They spent the first seven hours in the shelter core in cramped and uncomfortable conditions where it was impossible to do any leisure activity. They could simply endure. Discomfort was increased by the fact that the core was hardly big enough for three adults and they were constantly having to huddle together to prevent overlapping at the ends of the core. Later, the woman crept out into the wider fallout room to prepare a meal But the paraffin smell from their camping stove was so nauseating in that room. Remember, the windows were boarded up and there was no fresh air that it brought on headaches and two of them had to take aspirin. The next day, they were allowed to leave the wider fallout room for five minutes each. This would be dangerous, of course, in fallout conditions. The whole idea of having a fallout room is that you don't leave it But the government advice did allow for it, as it said that you would probably have to go outside very quickly to empty your waste bins and your toilet bucket, or, as Protect and Survive infamously says, to bury any loved ones in the garden. But this little break from the stuffy, paraffin-scented fallout room was soon over, and they were once again trapped inside. The cramped and silent surreal conditions actually affected the women so much that when one of the fake emergency broadcasts finished abruptly they became unnaturally afraid that the radio had broken down and that they'd, and that they'd receive no further communications from the outside world. The report goes on to say that they were so alarmed and troubled by this prospect that they tried to occupy themselves with sewing and knitting but, quote, Later, this work had to be undone because of mistakes. This is quite beyond their ordinary experience. 
The experiment report asks how we account for the dreadful apathy the women experienced, and one of the conclusions was the lack of stimuli in the fallout room. Of course, there was no TV. There will be reduced light, sometimes no light at all, if you're trying to preserve your supply of torches and candles. There isn't even the normal background hum of traffic and birdsong. Two reasons for that. One is that your fallout room is supposed to be away from the windows, but also the nuclear war is likely to have knocked out any prospects of an evening rush hour or charming birdsong. Now this lack of stimuli is interesting as the BBC had originally prepared a blend of jolly, cheerful programmes to be broadcast on radio after nuclear war, but this decision was reversed when it was realised that people would be running their radios on battery and should, of course, preserve that battery power for important news announcements, not drain them listening to Tony Hancock repeats. So here's some proof that those cheery radio shows would have been of great help to the population, but practical concerns forbade it. The report also says that simple aches and pains may have contributed to the apathy. That would hardly leave you, of course, in tip-top mood. But I'll quote here from the end of the report about another possible reason for the terrible apathy. There was a degree of uncertainty about the circumstances in which the subjects found themselves. In an uncertain situation... Reactions can be interpreted by reference to the degree of deprivation of human needs. No one seems to have improved on Murray's list of such needs, which include the need for freedom of movement, the need to be able to cope with various situations, the need for social contacts, the need to understand what is going on, the need for reasonable physical comfort. When a person is denied these needs, a probable defence mechanism is withdrawal and apathy. This is a common experience in the face of the uncertainties of a real threat. Even an imagined threat can evoke defences, and perhaps a manufactured threat, as in this instance, can have a similar effect. The report goes on to quote Lord Moran in his Anatomy of Courage. Apathy, he said, keeps at arm's length the habit of introspection which was the sure and uncertain herald of individual defeat. It was an insurance men took out against the unhinging of their minds. But the report gallantly goes on to say, There was no likelihood of our volunteers' minds becoming unhinged, but we can well believe that in the real thing, an apathetic and disinterested attitude may well be the means of keeping people going until things improve. So apathy might actually be a good thing. It might be, as we hear, an insurance against the unhinging of your mind. If you're smothered beneath a blanket of apathy, you're not perhaps being forced to look matters in the face. You're not having to immediately confront the nuclear wasteland outside and what you're going to do when your two weeks in the fallout room are up. Perhaps apathy is comforting and necessary and your mind provokes it, whether you like it or not, as a way of protecting you. (laughs) 
So what did the papers have to say about this nuclear experiment? The Orchard Evening Press referred to York Women's Lost Weekend and went on to refer to three cut off from the world outside. Of course, they weren't cut off at all. As we know, they were able to move around in the fallout room and were even allowed a little peep outside the fallout room and had a terrible emergency arose, they could easily have wandered off. They weren't cut off or sealed in or locked in. The Daily Sketch were equally as dramatic. Speaking of terror in dark for a test woman. Whereas the Daily Mail said, H-bomb that brought boredom and bad dreams. The only suitably humdrum headline came from the Yorkshire Post, which said, Miserable Sunday in Fallout Shelter. And can we detect a bit of old-fashioned 1960s sexism here? With lots of the papers speculating on whether a cat fight might break out between the three gals in that confined space. The Mirror was happy to report that there was no such fight and said, Bomb survivors are still friends. And the Northern Echo declared, Fallout women, better friends than before. (laughs) And the Sheffield Telegraph mentioned how they might lose glamour in the fallout room. The organisers of the experiment were much happier with the more measured and sensible coverage in the Times, who picked up on the important point which was the terrible lethargy and not the prospect of bitchy catfights. The Times spoke of the awful effects of the, the, the lethargy and the apathy, and I'll quote from their article here. All three had taken knitting and sewing with them, They had an ample stock of books and games, yet after the first 24 hours, even that basic feminine impulse to make frequent cups of tea deserted them. A full set of James Bond's adventures remained unread, the knitting and sewing almost untouched. We all felt the same. We just wanted to do less and less as time went on, Mrs Margaret Jones, aged 34, a housewife, said. The three women were surprised that this effect was so marked. So there we have it. You can build a shelter and an inner refuge to the government's precise specifications. You can follow the rules entirely and be a good little citizen. And even then, the horror of nuclear war will still get you. Even in the deepest, most secure, most untouchable nuclear shelter, the layers of concrete and steel can't account for the human mind and the terrors and defences it will dredge up. Surviving nuclear war isn't just about having a nice thick wall between you and the blast wave. That's just the start of it. I'm going to put some extracts up on my private Facebook page, which is called The Atomic Hobos. Uh, That's for people who subscribe to my Patreon at the top two levels. So if you're a member of our group, pop along there after the podcast and I will put up some extracts from the archive material about the York experiment. But I've also popped a few things on my Twitter account related to this. So get me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell if you want to find out more about it or if you've got any further questions about the podcast. 
And let me thank, of course, uh, everyone who contributes to my Patreon. If you want to join in and support the podcasts in exchange for nuclear rewards, take a look at patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo. You can see what the different levels of reward are, and if you want, you can contribute and help support the podcast. Thank you to every single person who does so, but let me give a special shout-out to the following patrons. Arika and Lucy Stegervald, Jonathan Abelins, Peter Mars, Andrew Key, Sam Marco, Richard Grundy, Dave Marks, Helen McHale, Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee, Sean Milson, Brian Outlaw, Damian Ryan, Peter Lee, Sarah Brassington, Nick Packham, Tara Moore, Simon Reed, Laura and Rebecca Curtis-Moss, Lynette Walsh, Christopher Creva, Richard Lewis, Adam Spink, Ian McCulloch, Linda Woolnuff, Kevin Butter, Simon Allison, Sean Judge, Paul Maxwell-Walters, Wynne Grant, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve Sace, Claire Brennan, Paul Jonathan Viner and Gordy McNair. Thank you everyone who's listened, thank you everyone who's contributed. Let me remind you the music for the podcast is by X. Find them on Twitter at IxBandUK. That's IxBandUK. I hope you've enjoyed this topic. It's It was a tad light-hearted compared to recent ones and certainly recent work that I've been doing about Chernobyl. So there's been a bit of humour in this one. Um, of course, you know that I'm not ever trivialising this when I add a bit of humour. It's just that British nuclear war planning did have an element of eccentricity to it and there is humour to be found there. And I thought that was a nice antidote, at least to the recent day. Uh, Chernobyl work that I've been doing and a lot of my Twitter chat recently has been all about Chernobyl so I thought we'll take a look at Britain for a change and its weird eccentric plans to prepare for nuclear war for example advising housewives to make what I call tummy custard so I hope you've enjoyed this one, Uh, thank you all for listening and I'll be back next week, bye for now